Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I have a lively conversation with Stephen Hurst. Stephen Hurst is the co-founder and chairman of the board of MindMed, Inc. MindMed is a new type of pharmaceutical company developing therapies to treat alcoholism, opioid addiction, and depression based on psychedelically inspired medicines. We go into depth on the different types of therapies, the changes in public perception about these types of medicines, what's going on at the FDA level, and many, many other topics. So on with the podcast. Welcome, Stephen, to the Growth Pioneers podcast. It's good to talk with you. Doug, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. I've been uh, excited to set this time up and chat with you. I appreciate you taking some time. I know you're in your ranch in, in beautiful Northern California, and we're, we're talking via satellite, so I appreciate you taking some time to, to make that work. For the benefit of California's Franchise Tax Board, I am a resident of Nevada and intend to stay a resident of Nevada, so I just want to make that absolutely clear that my heart and soul are in, are in the Reno-Sparks area. So. Well, I appreciate that. That was even unprompted. You know, we're really happy to have you in Nevada. And I think one of the great things about where we live is you still have the proximity to California, so you can go escape to the coast when necessary. But uh, yeah, that's great. So tell me, for the listeners, give me a little bit of background on your uh, professional background and, and you know, kind of most recently what you're doing with MindMed. Well, I've been doing drug development, uh, essentially new medicines development since I was uh, 18 years old and an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. I, I got involved in my first project, literally my second quarter uh, at Cal and was working on a, on a drug that was intended to make radiation treatment of cancer, solid tumors more effective. It was a drug called mizonidazole. And from that time on, my whole career has been focused in one way or another around the development of new medicines. And mind medicine is, is simply an extension of that career, which stretches, uh, you know, more than 45 years at this point in time. And I've worked on everything from vaccines to diabetes, heart disease, gout, worked on all different types of, of therapeutic areas and, and different projects over the years. And I've done it through many different capacities, everything from being a bench scientist, which is where I started. I, rather than getting a, a PhD many years ago in biophysics, I actually went to law school and became a patent attorney right at the dawn of the biotechnology age found it very exciting to be taking my science and putting it into a different field. So I ended up going to law school in San Francisco, uh, got my law degree, became a patent attorney, and had the good fortune to start working at the law firm that wrote the original Cohen-Boyer gene splicing patents, which is what launched the at least part of the biotech revolution. And very quickly went from working as a patent attorney to getting into much more of the deal structures. So negotiating license agreements and collaboration agreements between small biotech companies and large pharmaceutical companies eventually ended up in a small company called Inhale Therapeutic Systems that was developing an inhalable form of insulin. 
and took that all the way through to approval. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to rotate through the almost the entire executive structure, C-suite structure of the company. And I, I became general counsel of the NASDAQ company, went on to become the interim uh, executive vice president of operations and ran drug and device manufacturing operations for the company, regulatory quality, everything was reporting into me at one point, essentially on the operations side. And then I left and became a serial entrepreneur. Wow. What a diverse background. I mean, to start from bench sciences to work through patent and then all the corporate work. I mean, it gives you a really broad perspective of the biotech industry. It's been interesting. I've, I've seen it from the very start when the companies like, you know, Chiron were, were little itty bitty, you know, working in a couple of laboratories in Emeryville out of the old Shell research buildings and watched it really grow up and change and, and become essentially the research and development arm for the multinational pharmaceutical companies, which is really the structure that we're in today. Yeah. Given your range of experience and looking at different medicines for different issues, what what was sort of the inspiration behind MindMed? Like, what what is really the thing that was try, the problem that you're really trying to solve with MindMed? Maybe maybe give a little bit of background on on what MindMed's doing. So MindMed's actually a, you know a, something close to an overnight success that you know took twelve years to to make happen. The inspiration, as they do, yeah, the inspiration really comes down to wanting to work in neuroscience for for a number of years. And in 2008, um, I started working with uh, medical doctor Scott Freeman, uh, who lives in Las Vegas, by the way. And Scott and I had been doing consulting work for a while and, and been in and out of some small companies and ultimately had a long conversation about what we would like to do differently based on what we had seen in terms of the development of new medicines within the venture capital backed biopharmaceutical startup structure that was pretty traditional at that point it become fairly traditional and routine in the in the early 2000s early to mid 2000s and that really turned into well let's go find a project and start a company and we looked at a number of opportunities uh, we looked at some opportunities around human growth hormone for doing some hormone replacement therapies we looked at uh, a couple of cancer drugs and ultimately we found a project out of albany medical college with a, a molecule called 18mc is the lab designation. It's actually for the chemists in the group. It's actually 18-methoxycoordinaridine. And it's a synthetic organic molecule that was inspired by a compound known as ibogaine, which is extracted from the bark of a, of a bush in Western Africa and is a very, very potent hallucinogen. And Ibogaine had a reputation for being a very potent anti-addictive compound. And the result of that anecdotal data from the late 50s through the 1960s and 70s was a project being started by Dr. Stan Glick at Albany Medical College 
where he worked with a medicinal chemist at the University of Vermont to create what we call a library of analog compounds of Ibogaine, looking for something that was potentially anti-addictive, but non-hallucinogenic. And out of 60 compounds, the, the 15th they, one they tested was 18MC. Now, why is all that really important? So I'm going to ask the question and then answer it, because I do things like that. Being a lawyer, you know, it's like, you know, just kind of in my nature. So the thing that's really important about it is, is Stan had this feeling, sense, scientific intuition, inspiration, whatever you want to call it, that the anti-addictive properties of Ibogaine had nothing to do with the hallucinogenicity of Ibogaine. And he went about trying to see if he could prove that, and, and he actually did. So the inspiration here is separating the hallucinogenicity from the anti-addictive properties and then embarking on a drug discovery program through a collaboration with a medicinal chemist, Martin Kuna, at the University of Vermont, and coming up with an analog of Ibogaine that is non-hallucinogenic and fortunately also does not possess one of the even less desirable side effects of Ibogaine, which is it, it, Ibogaine is very pro-arrhythmic, meaning it can cause fatal heart attacks. And 18MC, 18, 18MC does not do that. So when we found the project, it was basically a just really fantastic academic research supporting Stan's thesis, uh, experimental work that was done that identified the probable mechanism of action, and great data in extremely predictive animal models. The, the animal models that are used to examine whether or not something is addictive and whether or not some treatment is anti-addictive are very, very good. They're probably some of the best animal models in science. So when we looked at the anecdotal data on Ibogaine, which had been compiled through an ethnographic study by someone who's now become a good friend, Dr. Ken Alpert at NYU, where he looked at over 2,000 anecdotal instances of Ibogaine administration for the treatment of uh, addiction in one form or another. We looked at Stan's data, we looked at the underlying chemistry, and everything about it just spoke to us that this is, in fact, an area that we want to be working on. Addiction, as you know, is an enormous problem. It's become an even bigger problem, uh, first really starting to be recognized in the press in about 2017 with the opioid crisis in America. And now, you know, I just saw a report on the news this morning that the overdose rate uh, deaths in San Francisco from drug overdoses during COVID have gone up 60% over the previous year. So this is an enormous crisis right now. So that, that, that got us, uh, it, it's, I mean, it's the sequela, the morbidity as people in, in medicine call it, is just unbelievable uh, what comes from addiction. And the most compelling thing about it from the standpoint of anyone that's that's been in healthcare for most of their careers, I mean, believe it or not, most people 
go into healthcare not because of the money. It's actually they don't like to see people suffer and they want to do something about it. And and it's you know it it sounds you know self-serving to talk about wanting to alleviate suffering, but it it really is for I think most people in healthcare that's really what it's about is they've probably had some kind of personal experience with it and they want to do what they can to to help people. And I think that that even extends to most of the people in the pharmaceutical industry, although, you know, it's a somewhat of a hated industry at this point. It's got a pretty bad reputation and a deserved bad reputation, especially with respect to opioids. But at the same time, there are tens of thousands of people that have nothing to do with the bad side uh, or the negative downside of the industry and its marketing practices uh, in, in some instances. And, and that's really important, I think, to keep in mind. So it really is about alleviating suffering. And if you start looking at addiction and you look at the people that could benefit from something that really does move the needle in terms of, of having a positive impact, uh, you know, you're looking at you know, maybe 11 million opioid abusers in the U.S. You're looking at 17 million heavy drinkers in the U.S. You've got over 30 million people that have tried to quit smoking that haven't been able to quit smoking. And you've got, you know, a a couple of million cocaine and methamphetamine abusers thrown into the mix. And you add all that up and you have a disease that affects more people than heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined. Yeah, just a huge amount of suffering and, and how many, and just think about all the individuals and then the families and the social impacts of all that. I mean, it's just, I know that's, especially the opiate addiction is affecting cities all over the country and it's, they don't just don't know how to deal with it. And what's the current standard of care? I mean, we don't really have pharmaceuticals to, to really address addiction effectively at this stage. Is that correct? We do have approved uh, pharmaceuticals for treating some addiction. There's there's nothing out there in the way of a drug to treat cocaine or methamphetamine. It's these are known as the stimulants. There's there's no one's been successful at addressing stimulant abuse. Uh, there are a number of drugs for opioids. There are some drugs for alcohol, and obviously there are some drugs for nicotine. But these are what are called substitution therapies for the most part. They're either aversion, which is there's a drug for alcoholism called anabuse that is an aversion therapy. Basically, you take your anabuse, and then if you take a sip of alcohol, it causes you to vomit violently. That's an aversion therapy. Not, Kind of an inhumane. <laughs> this, you talk about you know trying to alleviate <laughs> suffering by causing greater suffering. You know it's like uh, you, you know during prohibition they they started putting wood alcohol in things that required alcohol as a solvent, uh, so that any anyone that would abuse it by drinking it would basically die as a result of drinking it. Rather, so they replaced the ethanol with wood alcohol and then methanol, and they started killing a lot of people as a result of that. Again, pretty inhumane approach to dealing with the problem. So the substitution therapies, the the whole idea behind them, and again, I, I mean, they, they've helped a lot of people. So I don't want to go out there and put a knock on this particular approach. It's just, I believe we can do better. So substitution therapies are nicotine patches for nicotine addiction, uh, methadone and and suboxone for uh, opioid addiction. 
then there's some other drugs out there um, for uh, uh, there's a buprenorphine that, that can be used in alcoholism and there's a number of drugs but but the issue is is they, they don't work as well as they need to work you know the failure rates the best of the best have one in five patients maintaining call it sobriety uh, usually the goal in these therapies is abstinence at 12 months and and that's just not really good i mean that's that's a that's an 80 percent failure rate as opposed to a 20 percent success rate that's just not 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 good it's not not working well and people people should get better and and the reason why i take that position is is i i reject the notion that someone that has a substance use problem is is weak-willed or weak-minded or whatever it is that you know people want to call it it's actually a brain disease and and it's a very significant brain disease and it's a disease that is exploiting one of the most important adaptive features of the mammalian brain which is our neuroplasticity and our survival instincts it's very primitive it's a very old part of the brain it's it's focused in the reward pleasure centers of the brain and addiction basically co-ops that system and once you tap into that system it's literally your brain is just driving you to engage in behaviors that are unhealthy and undesirable so the substitution therapies don't fix that problem what they do is they replace something with a very high health liability risk like heroin with something that has a lower health liability risk like methadone but the addiction actually the underlying brain disease that is addiction is not cured is not even really reversed in any way it's still present you're just giving the body what it wants in a more controlled way that can give people back control of their lives yeah and and so how does the the molecule derived from ibogaine fundamentally change the therapy i mean what's what's it's not a replacement therapy so what is it really doing or what is your your thought on what it's doing so what we believe is happening and obviously you know we, we don't have little you know nanite cameras in the brain that are recording everything that's going on but we we know that the the target of 18mc the, the and and the you know it's being targeted by one of the alkaloids one or more of the alkaloids in, in an ibogaine tea or cocktail or extract whatever you want to call it are, are these nicotinic receptors that are concentrated in the reward pleasure centers of the midbrain. And the reason why this is so important is that the, the, the hallmark of addictive disease is a dysregulation of dopamine in the reward pleasure centers of the brain. And there are other approaches with respect to addiction that are targeting some different nicotinic receptors in this part of the brain. And the, probably the most significant one that people have heard of is a drug called Chantex. And Chantex is indicated for uh, smoking cessation. And it's targeting a different class of nicotinic receptor. And it's affecting those receptors in a different way than what we're doing with the, with the receptors, with the target that 18MC or Ibogaine is, is focused on. And what we're doing is actually reversing 
the normalizing, if you will, the regulation of dopamine in the reward pleasure center of the brain uh, such that it's no longer causing or influencing the negative reinforcing behaviors associated with addiction, principally craving or what we call cue-induced reinstatement. And this is where the neuroplasticity of the brain becomes so important because we're geared to reinforce, repeat what we find to be pleasurable activities, eating something that's tasty, you know, sex obviously is another example. Anything that gives us some kind of a sense of well-being or gratification, these are behaviors that our brain is geared towards reinforcing. Now, the problem is, is that if you don't give the brain what it's expecting in a given situation, then it will induce craving by basically really reducing the amount of dopamine in, in the reward pleasures of the centers of the brain to the point where you're miserable. You're just really agitated and uncomfortable, and it just drives you towards basically getting out of that feeling by gratifying what it is that the brain is expecting. Uh, and, you know, in the, the least harmful of cases, it's, you know, you see, you see a cookie and your brain says, oh, I want that. And you grab a cookie off the tray and eat the cookie even though you're on a diet and you shouldn't be eating cookies. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the classic. I've been known to do that. Yeah. I've been known to do that. My, my favorite thing uh, when I try to relate this story to people is, is I've, I've always been a, a, a big person and sometimes a lot bigger than I am now. And I'd like to be a lot smaller than I am now. So I'll go into Starbucks, you know, to, to pick up my, uh, my morning drink. And uh, this was pre COVID obviously. And uh, I go into, I go in and I'm intending to get a drink and a banana and I end up walking out, you know, taking the first bite out of a scone because I got cue induced, started craving, ordered the scone instead of the banana and walked out of the store feeling ashamed of myself for being so weak. But it's actually really just my brain messing with me. You know, it's basically saying, nah, I don't want a banana, I want a, yeah. a scone, man. Give me the scone, get the scone. And the next thing you know, the scones in your hand and going in your mouth. And that's, that's the classic yep. way that, that this sort of, you know, neuroplasticity affects us in terms of our behavior and, and working off of cues in our environment. So the, the difference here really to answer the question in short form is we actually change the way dopamine is being regulated in this area of the brain for the better and when you change it for the better it it actually results in treating the underlying brain disease as opposed to simply satisfying the craving that is being uh, caused by the brain disease now is this a, some a therapy that you have to take you know, on an ongoing basis, like an SSRI, or is this something that you can take in a, a couple of therapies and it and it fundamentally cures the, the brain disease? Well, since, since the drug is still in clinical development, we actually don't know what the final dosing regimen is going to look like. But here's what I would like to see is, although I've been in the drug business for a really long time, 
and I mean the ethical or legal drug business for a really long time. I don't think it's the best thing to give someone a drug every day for the rest of their lives. In some instances, you have no choice. Insulin's a great example. If you if you're a type one diabetic and you don't take your insulin injections, you're not going to live very long. So it's every single day you have to take your drug, and there's currently no choice in that. But you know, SSRIs are tested were tested in clinical studies for maybe a year in patients, six months more likely, before they were approved. A lot of the data on them, you know, comes from you know, post-approval pharmacovigilance kinds of work. And we find out, you know, interesting things about drugs in the post-approval that we never saw in the clinical trials. I think most people would tell you that that taking a drug, you know, every day for the rest of your life without data is not necessarily a good idea, that there's a risk associated with it. So the model I like is I like the antibiotic model. I like it. You get sick, you take your drug, you get better, you stop taking your drug. If you get sick again, you can take the drug again. You get better, you stop taking the drug. That's what I hope we end up doing with 18MC and, and this class of compounds. I mean, that would be really curative. It would be wonderful. And and the other thing that I really hope for with these drugs, and I, I don't want to just focus on 18MC because, again, you have Ibogaine and the fact that it's potently anti-addictive. It's got its issues. Psilocybin is in moving into a phase three clinical trial and alcohol use disorder. The phase two was done at NYU by a colleague of mine, Michael Bogenschutz. Um, the data is being evaluated right now. It looks very promising. All of the psychedelics appear to have some type of, of anti-addictive properties that can be used to benefit the patient. So it's not just limited to 18MC. 18MC, 18MC just happens to be, you know, it's just, it's a great, what we call label, meaning what the FDA hopefully will approve in terms of its use because 18MC is an oral, it'll be in pill form, pill or capsule form. It won't be a highly controlled substance the way psychedelics will be or likely to be. Uh, you'll be able to pick it up at your local pharmacy, take it at home. You won't need a lot of supervision the way you have to have with psychedelics. So 18MC, if it bears out through the later stages of clinical trials, really is going to be a, a real game changer. You have multiple approaches, right? So you have the uh, 18MC, you have a derivative or, or you're using psilocybin and then aren't you also doing something in microdosing? and you know talk to me about the kind of the different strategies there i i understand that you know the 18mc is really has a there's some positives because it doesn't have um the psychedelic impact so it's much more available you can take it at home as you said but some of these other uh compounds have other potential benefits yet they may have some different uh challenges in rolling out to the public so it seems like as a company, you've you've gone after you've looked at three different vectors or multiple vectors of trying to solve you know, these types of problems. So maybe you can help me understand the thinking behind you know why HMMC, why microdosing, and why uh, psilocybin. Let's go back a little bit in time. And when we started working on eighteen MC in two thousand and nine, I, I thought it was a complete one off. I thought it was you know the it was. 
a non-hallucinogenic analog that retained a medicinal property of ibogaine. I didn't think more broadly. And then in, in 2014, another colleague of mine, who's now a very good friend, Carrie Turnbull, he reached out to me having heard about the 18MC project, and he was involved with a compound called BOL148. And BOL148 was invented at Sandoz, which is where LSD was invented by Albert Hoffman. And BOL148 is a is LSD with a single bromine atom attached to it that makes it non-hallucinogenic. And the reason why Carrie was working with it was because it had been discovered by researchers in Germany and at Harvard collaborating together that BOL148 retained a medicinal property of LSD with respect to a really horrible disease called cluster headache. So when Kerry came to me, you know, he said, look, I really want your help on this BOL148 project. And the reason is it has real parallels to what you've done with 18MC and 18MC's relationship to Ibogaine. And so all the pieces kind of, you know, fell in place at that point. But that was an aha moment for me because what I realized was that there was a whole, potentially an entire class of compounds that were derivative of psychedelic compounds that were potentially non-hallucinogenic while retaining medicinal properties associated with the psych with the psychedelics and that had me basically coin the phrase neurotransformational medicines basically meaning these are compounds that change the way neurotransmitters are regulated in the brain. They change it in a positive way. And like Ibogaine and 18MC, they change it in a durable way, meaning that when you stop taking the drug and it's no longer at relevant concentrations in the body, the changes in neurotransmitter regulation continue for some period of time. The story with Ibogaine is there's people out there that were heroin addicts, had a single Ibogaine experience, never took heroin again, never craved it. Those are the, you know, one in a hundred thousand kind of stories. The typical story with Ibogaine is that, that people go and they have an Ibogaine experience and they don't experience cravings for about 30 days. And then, you know, they need to go back and do it again. And what we see with 18MC is we see that the animal in the animal models that, you know, a single dose of 18MC attenuates their self-administration behavior for days, you know, long after the drug has essentially left their system. So this durable effect becomes important. And all that had me in, you know, probably 2015, 2016 convinced that there was an entire new field of pharmacology out there. Um, which, again, I was calling neurotransformational medicines, which eventually became psychedelic-inspired medicines. Now, basically what this means is, to answer your actual question, which is we're working in different modalities and different ways with these compounds, what you end up with is a a field of pharmacology that we now call psychedelic-inspired medicines, which basically means everything from 
a very potent hallucinogen used for therapeutic purposes under the right set and setting and and in capable hands to alleviate suffering in patients from certain types of mental illnesses or addictions all the way to the non-hallucinogenic analogs that include ATMC and BOL-148 and there are other compounds out there that we're aware of as well that fall into the same category. Now, the middle ground is microdosing. So rather than taking a hallucinogenic dose of a psychedelic agent, People have been describing benefit from taking sub, what we call sub-experiential doses and finding that their creativity, their concentration, things like that are greatly enhanced by looking at microdosing. The problem with microdosing, at least at the time that we founded Mind Medicine two years ago, is that it's all anecdotal data, meaning no one's ever done a controlled study. We don't know if microdosing works or if it's a placebo effect or if it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. We just There's just no data out there. So one of the things that we decided to do when we wrote the business plan for Mind Medicine is that we would work along the entire continuum from the potent hallucinogens all the way to the non-hallucinogenic analogs. And that would be the differentiator for mind medicine moving into this field that is known as psychedelic medicine or psychedelic therapy. And, and that's really the business plan for the company and what makes it completely unique. And, you know, what I would like to believe has been the value driver. I, I mean, you know, she, should I recount kind of the mind med history? Because it, it is pretty, it's still a pinch me moment for me. You know, it's, it's, still, I still don't believe <laughs> what's going on here. So, well, it, you've really well articulated the thought process. And I guess I, one of the questions that came up for me was, you know, in the M 18 MC, you know, that there is an advantage to not having the hallucinogenic component to it, but it does sound like there are certain circumstances where maybe the hallucinogenic component is actually a benefit. So where are you seeing that? Is that, is it directed towards maybe PTSD or is it still for addiction or let's get into a little bit more neuroscience and i don't mean neuroscience 101 i mean neuroscience for dummies like me well and me so thank you let's keep it you know we're hearing all the time i mean there's even ads now on the tv for you know dietary supplements that enhance neuroplasticity you know it's like wow okay here we go so what's neuroplasticity mean the mammalian brain is phenomenal uh and, and it's not just the human brain although the humans have taken it to a whole new level but we literally are able to do more than one thing at a time. However, anyone who actually believes that they can multitask on things that take a lot of thought are kidding themselves because the brain does not work that way. But what the brain does do is, is, is it takes processes that we repeat over and over again that start out requiring a great deal of thought basically meaning you're burning a lot of glycogen in the brain to, to fuel the brain activity. And eventually it becomes routine and moves into a part of the brain 
that does things like take you from your home to your office in your automobile without you having to give it very much thought at all. In fact, you can get on the telephone and carry on a conversation or listen to something on the radio and pay attention to it and not kill yourself or anyone else in the process of going from home to work. This has been described in a number of ways. These these routine processes become something you know uh, known as cognitive bias or fast thinking processes in the brain, and this frees up the brain to be able to focus and concentrate on you know real problem solving that again burns a lot of glycogen. And you can see it on the PET scans, the brain scans that measure these things. You can just see the brain light up when it's problem solving. But we're able to, you know, not only do we have an autonomic nervous system that keeps us breathing and our heart beating and, and our eyes blinking and doing all that kind of stuff without ever giving it a moment's thought, but we have this other component of this fast thinking part of the, the, the conscious brain where we're taking in, you know, data from our environment, we're adapting what we're doing, and all that's happening in the background. It's like background processing on a computer. And then there's the stuff that that you really have to focus on. You know, the first time you, you know, drive to work from a new house, you probably either listen to your, well, these days you got your GPS that tells you what to do, but you got to be listening for it. In the old days, you might have to get a map out or have a set of written directions and follow street names and right turns and left turns and that kind of stuff. That requires a fair bit of thought, but you do it a couple of times and you don't think about it anymore. So this fast thinking, slow thinking is the model that I, I like to use because I really, I really like the model. And there's a great book out there called Fast Thinking, Slow Thinking. And if you really want to get into it, you can spend a few days trying to dig your way through that book. But it's, it's a really good book and it really describes this process well. So the, the, the issue that we get into is that we can develop a fast thinking or a cognitive bias pattern that's really destructive. And it, it happens, anxiety disorders, people suffer from ruminative thought processes, usually around future events where we cannot predict or know the outcome. And then we develop some kind of anxiety or fear because we don't know the outcome. We don't have a sense that we're in control. And you get into a loop behavior in the brain. And loop behaviors are very well known in neuroscience. Loop thinking uh, can be measured with the electroencephalograph. You can actually see it. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is a loop process. Open loops drive us crazy. It's like if you think about it, if you've ever watched uh, The Big Bang Theory and Sheldon Cooper and the fact that he has to knock and say the name three times at every door. And if somebody opens the door after two times, he has to pretend to knock and say the name anyway, because he's got to complete the loop. And this is kind of the way our, our, our brains work. So if you get into something like post-traumatic stress, certain very serious types of, of ruminative thought processes that are destructive, body dysmorphias, eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. These are very, very hard cognitive biases for someone to get past. So our thinking in terms of the potent hallucinogens is that you're essentially doing something like a hard reset. It's known that these compounds suspend cognitive bias in the brain. And that should give us an opportunity to retrain the brain. 
to think in a more constructive and a more positive way. It may be a single session. It may be multiple sessions. We don't know yet, but it's a very, very promising in terms of the opportunity to interrupt what is a ruminative process due to a cognitive bias and retrain the brain under the guidance and, 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 and care of a skilled therapist. And that's why the hallucinogenic so, so, you know, over, overcoming, overcoming a fear of, of I mean, I'll, I'll use some really horrible examples, but the, the, a lot of women that have been sexually assaulted are terrified of men afterwards. It's not necessarily healthy for the rest of their lives. It may keep them safe, but they're not going to be in healthy relationships. If they get in a relationship, there's going to be issues. That kind of post-traumatic, you know, syndrome is really causes tremendous suffering and it goes well beyond even the victim of, of the attack or or you know somebody with a horrible combat experience for example it may take years for them to normalize their behavior and, and get to where they can you know they can hear a car backfire and not duck for cover these compounds can probably should be able to help people get over that much quicker and realize that they're actually in a pretty safe situation most of the time, help them to identify behaviors so that they're cognitively aware of danger signals that are real as opposed to imagined, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's the the hard reset of a hallucinogenic experience in, in its value. You know, in that environment, you really want to work alongside a therapist, right? Unlike 18 MC, where you might be able to take it over the counter, you know, just doing a hard reset without some therapeutic intervention, you, you know, what do you hard reset to? I mean, it may, it creates, it sounds like it creates a little bit of a blank slate to. You can't just go out and take LSD and overcome your post-traumatic stress. It's not going to work. Not going to happen. It, you need a guided experience and it needs to be, first of all, no one should be using psychedelics legally or, or, or not without a lot of care and attention to set and setting. Set and setting have everything to do with whether it's a positive or a negative experience. And if it is a negative experience, minimizing the potential harm associated with the experience. So you need to be with people that know what they're doing, that have been trained. There are programs that train people now. There's a, a program in San Francisco. There's a program at Johns Hopkins uh, University that train people to coach folks that are in clinical trials with hallucinogenic compounds as uh, program at NYU that does the same thing. It's extremely important that people not try to, if you will, self-medicate in order to address some underlying distress or disease. That's critical. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, safety, you know, psychological and physical safety is critical to this. I guess one of the things that's interesting from a from a pharmaceutical company you know, is there an analog in other drugs where it requires such close coordination with therapists, or is this kind of a new form of drug and mental therapy coming together? Well, no, I think when you get into some of the hard, really hard antipsychotics, heavy doses of antipsychotic medications, things like that, those those are used in, usually they're used in inpatient situations and, uh, you know, with fairly close supervision. They go hand in hand with counseling sessions and the like. So, the, I mean, that therapeutic model exists and we're not creating anything new here other than the fact that it may become more effective and more ubiquitous in our society 
for people to, to, to be receiving treatment under this paradigm. That's what the change is. Yeah, it's making it more, you know, when you think about somebody under a heavy antipsychotic in, a, in an institution, that doesn't sound great. I, I think what you're really talking about now is being able to work alongside a licensed therapist or a psychiatrist in a, a safe set and setting that looks more like maybe an outpatient or going to the spa or some other type of environment that's purely wellness driven and, and therapeutic that's a very different way of looking at it than being an institutionalized. So just make kind of normalizing that. It's like, um, you know, going into, I mean, most of us, well, especially when you get to a certain age, as us old folk like to say, when you get to a certain age, you know, most of us have had the experience of going into the ambulatory, you know, surgery center uh, to have a procedure done, whether it's scoping a knee or you know, whatever it is, you know, you go in, you check in, you're there for, for a number of hours and you go home at the end of the day, you don't stay overnight. That's the kind of environment that we're looking at with respect to the, you know, potent hallucinogens at, at experiential doses. Uh, microdosing is likely to be, you know, at home microdosing doesn't take people out of their daily routines for the most part. It's going to be subject to some innovations with respect to preventing diversion of a microdose form by people that would like to take an experiential dose. But those technologies, some of them exist already. They're a little bit cumbersome at this point in time. They'll get better over time. And I think microdosing is very much going to be a, you know, at home every few days, you know, kind of a dosing regimen. And then there's the non-hallucinogenic analogs like ATMC, BOL148 and the like that uh, you just pick them up from the pharmacy and take them home just like you would your antibiotic medication. Follow the label, get better. If you get sick again, you can do it again. So, I mean, this poses a lot of interesting questions. I mean, I guess one of the things that comes up for me is, you know, the psychedelics have a bad rap and a long or, a, you know, a history to them. And, and you probably have a lot of stigma associated with what are, you know, let's just assume for a minute that all the drugs or the majority of the drugs that are going through clinical trials are demonstrate to be effective. You know, what are the challenges with bringing these types of compounds out into the public, given the history of the 60s and some of the, you know, the war on drugs and all of these other things that are in the kind of collective conscious of our, of our country? Well, I, I think most of cognitive bias exists in my generation. So it's, it's among the boomers. What we've seen in our discussions is, you know, millennials, Gen Xers are, are much less put off by the notion of, of a hallucinogen. Those of us that come out of the boomer generation, I mean, we, we, we listen to the whole, you know, drugs are horrible, you know, propaganda from the late 60s, you know, resulting in a lot of things being put on Schedule 1 in 1970, a lot of propaganda, really, not really solid research uh, about, you know, marijuana being a gateway to heroin and I, just horrible stuff. And, and I mean, I actually had the experience of one of my advisors in college was a, a fellow by a physiologist by the name of Hardin Jones, who wrote this horrible book about the evils of marijuana based on absolutely no scientific data whatsoever. And we kind of come out of that 
sort of indoctrination, if you will, the war on drugs, the just say no campaign, you know, under Ronald Reagan, a very poor understanding of exactly what what these drugs are, what they're doing, how they work, their safety profiles. It's it's actually psilocybin and LSD are among some of the least toxic, safest compounds from a toxicity standpoint that I've ever seen in my entire career. Yet I've had conversations with science writers and journalists that have you know, literally said to me, well, these are poisons. Why are you working on them? It's like, well, your data is wrong. They're not poisons. Uh, aspirin is more poisonous than LSD. But again, you can take aspirin and, and not want to jump out of a fifth story window thinking you can fly. So set and setting, again, is what's important. But the toxicity levels of these compounds is pretty low. The thing that you probably still have to be careful with, with almost any psychedelic, is that most of them do appear to hit a serotonergic, a serotonin receptor in a way that can cause cardiac arrhythmia. And we know Ibogaine is pro-arrhythmic and we know it can produce the kinds of arrhythmias that can be fatal. Not all psychedelic compounds are going to have that same feature, but I think as they're developed, I think cardiac safety is going to be an important part of the work that we do. And it certainly has been a huge part of what we've done with Ibogaine. We've closely monitored all of our patients. We've done some extensive animal studies in terms of cardiotoxicity. Uh, we've, we've put a lot of time and money into making sure that 18MC is, is not cardiotoxic. And so far, so good. And we've done some pretty high doses. So we have a fair bit of confidence about the cardiotoxicity with respect to 18MC. But again, I've never heard of anybody being poisoned by psilocybin or, I mean, if, if you get the wrong mushroom, God help you. But if you get a psilocybin mushroom, I've never heard of psilocybin poisoning. I've never heard of peyote poisoning. I've never heard of LSD poisoning. Maybe there are examples out there, but they are really few and far between. And potentially that one in a million patient that's going to have a problem with whatever it is. Uh, but as a matter of routine, these are very, very safe compounds. And the bias out there is that they're very unsafe compounds. Well, wrong set and setting. Yeah, they're very unsafe compounds. I, I don't want somebody driving down the freeway that's in the middle of, you know, tripping on a potent hallucinogen. I mean, I really don't want them driving down the highway if they're, you know, on cannabis. But obviously it's done a lot and people don't die all the time from it. But I certainly don't want to see that where, you know, somebody is completely in a state of cognitive dis dissociation. That's not a good thing. No, definitely not. And I don't think that I, I don't think that we'll see the psychedelic inspired medicines roll out the same way that we've seen cannabis. I know that there's different legislation and different you know, uh, approaches to decriminalization. But I, one of the things that I really appreciate about you and, and, you know, your company is its focus on, you know, working through the FDA, developing medicines that have clinical trial, double blind studies, you know, really going down to the science and putting the patient first. And I, and I can, this is a broader political topic, but I, I do think that your approach to this is 
the way to help alleviate the stigma and then help really help the most patients at the end of the day. So I, I just really appreciate the, your the diligence and, and the, the, the way that you approach this. It simply has to be a data-driven process. And I, I appreciate the kind words, but for me and my background, it couldn't be any other way. If the data isn't there and you're putting it in your body, you're taking a huge risk. And, and, and if I've learned nothing about pharmaceuticals or drugs or substances that we put in our bodies, it is that the more we know, the better off we are. The less we know, the greater risk we take. And that's with anything that we put in our bodies. I don't care if it's food or a nutraceutical or a prescription drug. The more we know, the better. And drugs don't work the same in everybody. Uh, some people won't respond. Uh, I know a person, personally know someone that's taken 14 times what's considered to be a heroic dose of LSD and never had a hallucinatory experience. So everybody's different. We're all different. And we have to appreciate that. So data, data, data. And with that in mind, how is the FDA feel about these compounds? I mean, it, it seems like there, there does seem like there's more openness. I mean, you've got Compass is public, you guys went public, Peter Thiel's invested in, so it feels like there's more and more conversation around the oper- the, you know, the potential, but at the end of the day, we, you know, the FDA is going to have to clear these compounds. So what's your take on where the FDA is at with this whole class of, of medicine? Until you get to the senior administrative levels of the FDA, it, the FDA is a scientific organization. You know, po- politics happens, you know, at the commissioner's level and the assistant commissioners. They they deal with the politics of things and the legislature and all that. The FDA is data driven. I mean, that's why the mind medicine story resonates, you know, at FDA is it's all about the data. I've had meetings with folks at the FDA on projects that involve experiential dosing of psychedelics. And, and their attitude is simple. Bring us the data. If the data bear out safety and efficacy, you know, your, your, your drug will get approved. If it doesn't, it won't, just like any other drug. And that's their attitude is we, we will review these compounds as we review all new medicines. And that's the standard. Uh, there's a really interesting article that was published in 2018 that was written by Dr. Bonson, Catherine Bonson, at FDA in, in their Schedule One division. And it's, the, it's actually the article is on the history of LSD at FDA. And at the end of the article, she basically puts the roadmap out there of, you know, we do not per se exclude the possibility of the approval of LSD as a potential therapy. But you have to bring us the data, and it has to conform to best practices. If it doesn't conform to best practices, then, you know, you're going nowhere with it. And that's the way it should be, and that is the way it is today. Is there a higher bar or a different standard because of it being Schedule One and the and the role of the DEA? I mean, I know it's more difficult to do these types of trials in the United States. I mean, what do you see there as the interplay between the FDA and the DEA and ultimately getting these things up? The difficulty, first of all, the fact that something is Schedule One does not mean that you can't do research on it, and, and, and that's a misconception. You have to get special licenses. 
every facility that you do work in that handles your compound has to be licensed. It has to be licensed specifically for the compound that you're working on. There's no blanket schedule one licensing. And the whole issue with DEA in terms of this is, is the drug secure? And do you have an audit trail for every nanogram of the material so that we can be sure that it's not being diverted for illicit purposes. So not every facility that drug does new medicines development has a schedule one license. And that is potentially rate limiting as the development work moves forward and more and more of these compounds are being researched and more and more studies are done. But right now, all the facilities that we work with all have the appropriate schedule one licenses and they can be audited by DEA at any time. And when they have been audited, they have been inspected and passed their audits. So that's that's the added complication of working in Schedule 1. It isn't per se prohibitive. It is burdensome, but it is not prohibitive. Got it. Thank you for clarifying that. I, as someone who, you know, wants to help alleviate the suffering of the most people, you obviously want to move these things along at the most, you know, the fastest pace that's reasonable for safety. And I do appreciate, you know, the fact that they, you know, the extra controls, it just, it, it would be interesting to see if we could open up more opportunity for that type of research. But it does seem like that, that may be changing. I mean, you know, I, the money that went into Johns Hopkins from Tim Ferriss, and you know, there's just a lot of activity talking about the potential. So maybe a different question is, do you see any risks in, you know, this becoming part of the cultural narrative again? Do you think that's a good thing, a bad thing? Are people getting a little premature on talking about all of the wonders of these types of medicines or? Well, you're asking me to, to comment on a political or a societal state. And, you know, as I said before, I mean, I'm first and foremost a scientist. And to me, it's kind of all about the data. I have a strong belief that the data are going to be very, very positive and very supportive, but negative data can hurt. So the people that, that if there is greater access to hallucinogens and bad things happen as a result, that has the potential to hurt the, I hate to use the term, but I'll use it, what, what we call the ethical development process you know, the, the legal efforts to bring these new medicines to patients can be hurt. People that do not use these compounds without respecting their power and without respecting the traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation through tribal uses with respect to controlling set and setting making sure that people have a safe experience and if they have a particularly challenging hallucinatory hallucinogenic experience that they're being coached through it in a manner where their concerns their paranoia their anxiety is being lessened not increased and that's the risk of the the popularization of these compounds 
and they're becoming more ubiquitous in our society because they will be misused and that misuse could lead to political challenges and as we all know uh, certainly from the last few years politics and data can have very little to do with each other yeah and i guess that's i think that you you put a really fine point on it i guess that's the concern you know that i don't see another timothy leary popping out of the woodwork but you know if you read the gosh what is the book i'm thinking of that was very popular uh michael pollan's book you know he pretty clearly puts some how to change your mind yeah how to change your mind yeah it's a great book by the love way love that book it was a really insightful book I love that, but I think Michael did it. Michael did a great job. I, I, there's only one chapter that I knock in the book, and we don't need to get into that. But, but I guess he had to do it. The, the, the chapter where he tries to describe the experience, where he starts out by saying Aldous Huxley and others have attempted unsuccessfully to describe the hallucinatory experience, and then he goes on for another thirty pages trying to describe the hallucinatory experience. I thought it was hysterically funny. <laughs> I love his book, and I laughed my way through that chapter. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it, as someone who's worked in this field for a long time, I mean, you obviously have seen a lot of different things happen over the years, I guess. And so, as someone who wants to see this therapy be helpful, I just, you know, just it, me as well. I mean, I have friends that have had very powerful transformational experiences, and, you know, you, you can see that the current state of mental health is not what it could be. I mean, clearly there are good therapies out there. My, a good friend of mine is a cognitive behavioral psychiatrist, but we can always do better. And I think that that's one of the things that these types of compounds shows real promise around addiction, PTSD, a lot of other drugs. So I, I'm just excited to see them out there. I just would hate for something to derail it. All you have to do is, you know, spend, um, okay. So you're, you know, you, you live in Reno or in the Reno area, take a drive down Forest street. As you get closer to, to Highway 80 in the east part of Forth, you know, the amount of homelessness becomes ubiquitous. I mean, I would bet that probably 50% of the people that are out there homeless are veterans. And I would bet that more than 50% of the people that are out there homeless have underlying mental health issues. Okay. And, you know, nobody, you know, we're all afraid somebody's going to be violent or we're going to be accosted or, you know, whatever it is. But we just, we can't put our head in the sand and ignore what's going on around us. It's getting worse. It's not getting better. We're not treating mental illness well. We're totally disrespecting a huge population of our veterans that made tremendous sacrifices and their families made tremendous sacrifices. I'm the father of an Air Force veteran who did two tours overseas. And thank God he's safe and intact and doing brilliantly well and hasn't really had any problems. But we're among the lucky ones, you know. So, you know, when, when I look and I see, I see those issues out there and all I do is I keep coming back to the same place, which is we need to do better. These people didn't ask to have a mental illness. People don't ask to have addiction. And Doug, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I don't, I haven't been out there in public with this stuff. I think it's important in Nevada for people to know that stuff happens in Nevada that affects the whole world. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, when you hear about what, you know, when I, when we first met, you know, you hear about people doing great things. And then unfortunately it seems like, you know, you had to take the company just for the nature of what it is. It wasn't totally built here, but the fact that you're here, you're a mentor in our ecosystem. The fact that you're helping advise people on, on legislation, all of these different things. I mean, that is a real, you're making a real contribution to our community. And as, as we were talking before, you know, that will filter down into the veterans and the homeless and the people that are struggling with mental illness, which there are a lot. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are first responders that are going through this. In fact, at our board meeting yesterday, one of the challenges was the PTSD associated with being a doctor and a nurse and the concern that they're going to lose a lot of healthcare workers because of the pandemic. And so if we have therapies that can help people deal with PTSD, that is better for all of us. And I just appreciate you being, uh, you know, leading the charge on this one. And I know it's probably not always been the easiest uh, path to take, especially in the early days. Well, you know, I've been really fortunate uh, career-wise because I've, I've been given opportunities that most people don't get. And I'm really glad that I didn't go to medical school or, or get a PhD and, and took the path that I did because I've been able to impact a lot more people in the process. And I, you know, I think I mentioned to you in one of our conversations, the work that I did with the World Bank and, and the G7 on a vaccine project for the developing world. And, you know, the, the opportunity to have that kind of impact and that vaccine project has vaccinated 130 million children in the developing world against pneumococcal pneumonia. You have an opportunity to do things like that. You know, it's very, it's really pretty humbling because I realize that I'm very, very fortunate, and I've been given opportunities to to do things that other people have have not had. Were they given the opportunity, I'm sure they would do exactly what I did, which is you kind of go all in and you do everything to make it happen, and and that's really, I think, what what this is really about is, you know, in the parlance of our state and the and the casinos. You don't win a poker tournament without going all in at least once. And when you've got something that is really got the potential to move the needle, you have to overdetermine the result by doing not only everything you can think of, but everything anybody else can think of to make it happen that makes sense. And I think that's that's part of what's kind of in it's certainly in my DNA. And what I think is actually interestingly enough not to be gratuitous, but it will sound that way. It's a lot of the spirit of, of the people in Nevada. It's people have overcome an awful lot to be successful in the state. And they've gone counterculture on multiple opportunities and ended up becoming mainstream as a result. I mean, look at the divorce laws, look at the gambling laws. You know, we've got a huge challenge in the state which is to build greater resilience so that economic downturns don't have these huge dramatic consequences for the people that live in the state of Nevada. And that's one of the reasons why I really like, you know, working in the state because people want to create that kind of an environment and that kind of an ecosystem and they understand the importance of it. So, you know, I mean, to me, it's just, you know, it's a further extension of the kind of stuff that I love to do. And next time we can talk about my my we can talk about my wild horse project. The next time, if you want to get into another 
<laughs> yeah, I would love to. I mean, this really, this is why you're a growth pioneer, Stephen, honestly. I mean, you are a pioneer. I mean, you know, And the pioneers took a lot of arrows in the back as they were going over and braving new ground. I mean, I'm sure there was, on more than one occasion, you probably had you know, researchers, scientists, and other people, um, regulators kind of turn their nose at you through this whole process, you know, over the many years, I, you know, now it sounds like it's, it's more, there's more receptivity about it, but I'm sure that you've had a, more than a few doors slammed to your face or, or rolled eyes about these compounds. I guess people have tried, but nothing's ever sunk in. I'm just too, I'm too stubborn. <laughs> if I, if, if I, if I think something's the right if I think something's the right thing, maybe it's arrogance or stubbornness or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what it is. But if I think it's the right thing, I, I'm i not going to really listen much to the background noise. I'm just going to figure out how to make it happen. And I think that that's, you know, all, all too often. Uh, well, I, I have a saying, which is naivete enables innovation. So I just try to stay naive. I don't learn lessons from my past experiences in terms of what I shouldn't be doing going forward. I just continue to go forward. And yes, I, I do learn some of those lessons, but I don't, I really think that it's, it's too easy to become cynical. It's too easy to become sedentary. It's too easy to become ossified in your thinking. And I struggle every single day to, to fight all of those things. And the, the hardest thing is, is the cynicism. Because the business environment has changed and it isn't as, it's not as noble as it once was. And I miss that. I come from a generation where you, you could do a, you could do a multi-million dollar deal on a handshake and not think twice about it. And I've had in the last five years on more than one occasion for the first time in a very long career, I've actually had people breach contracts and basically ignore them. And, you know, that's not the case here at Mind Medicine. Mind Medicine's actually been great. But I'm just saying that there's a there's an ethical shift in the business environment that I don't think is a good one. And I hope that at some point we can all get together and get a little dialogue going on exactly that. I'm pretty hopeful for the millennials. I, I do think that I mean, and, and maybe and the other generation, I think that people are starting to question that at a macro level. I, again, it could just be the lens that I look through. Uh, but I do really resonate with your, you know, I would say it a different way. Like I always walk in as a core value of beginner mind. Mm -hmm. I want to be beginner mind at all of these, you know, whenever I'm going out into the world. In fact, it's one of the core values of our entrepreneurial forum is to look at things from a beginner mind. And I'm always tested or reminded of how my past thinking is affecting my current thinking. And I, and so I, it's, it's definitely aspirational for me to maintain a beginner mind. But I, you know, I guess I sit with a lot of young entrepreneurs. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, so suspending your own cognitive bias is, is not, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, but it's essential for entrepreneurism. I mean, you know, naivete really does facilitate innovation. The, the, the fact that you don't know how hard it's going to be, that you don't know how many setbacks you're going to experience that you don't know how many times you're going to feel like a dog chasing a parked car that hasn't learned that it hurts. You know, it's just, it's the nature of the beast. And, and what we, what we need to do is to just keep fueling that desire to, to do what hasn't been done before. 
I agree. Spoken like a true pioneer. So, you know, I think we're coming up against time. I just, I guess one last question for you, Stephen, is, you know, now you've, you've retired from your operating role. You're still on the board of MindMed. What's, what's next for you? Well, it's actually my, uh, my uh, Horse Overpopulation Project. I'm forming a foundation that's called the Horse Overpopulation uh, Research Study and Education Institute. And I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to do is, is for the first time bring together uh, folks from BLM, uh, the equine lovers that deal with wild horses and, and, and people from the biopharmaceutical community to talk about how we improve contraceptive vaccines to deal with the overpopulation problem. You, you, you may or may not know this, but there's over 70,000 wild horses, most of which are in Nevada. And the rangeland can only support health in a healthy manner somewhere between 20 and 25,000. And the numbers are increasing from 10 to 15% per year because they kind of breed like rabbits. So the answer is coming up with a contraceptive vaccine that actually works and isn't expensive to administer. And that's my big new project is uh, I want to preserve the majesty of these beautiful animals in the wild. You know, what a great project. Honestly, you know, I spent a lot of time in eastern Nevada, hot springing and traveling. I've been all over the state. And one, it just, it never gets old to see, a you know, a herd of wild it, it does not. horses and or donkeys or, you know, just, well, we'll have to talk some more about that. It does not. And, you know, the, the problems are, you know, the, the, the human beings, again, are the problem. You know, if they had enough range land, they could breed and support themselves and be healthy. But, you know, the horses that are being gathered by BLM for adoption are coming in very malnourished. And, you know, there's going to be a Malthusian correction in the horse herds, meaning a massive die off at some point in time. If we don't do something, they can't gather and adopt enough to really have an impact. So the answer is the answer is contraception. And as you know, yeah. So let's talk about it some more sometime. See how the project does here. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to talking about it. I just it's been a real pleasure, Stephen. Thank you for taking so much time with me to talk about something that I think is really on the cutting edge and has the real promise to help millions of people with that are struggling. So thank you so much for all your hard work and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Doug, for the opportunity and uh, best of luck in your endeavors. You do a lot for the community and I think you should uh, be very proud of the work that you do. Oh, thank you. It definitely keeps me moving every day. So thank you very much. Take care.